As you open your Bibles, I want you to go to the end of the New Testament to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be again today as we're just moving verse by verse through this epistle. But I want to mention something to you. I know it's been on your mind. Uh, recently, Guidepost released a 288-page report. It was an investigation that was called for by the SBC constituents to look into the sexual abuse allegations and to audit the procedures and the actions of the Credentials Committee uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that independent investigation, as I said, came from people like you and me. Uh, and the results of that were pretty harmful and embarrassing, and I don't mind telling you, anger in a righteous, indignating way. Abuse has no place in the hearts and lives of Christians, period. And it certainly has no place in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. However, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing sometimes penetrate into the church life and begin to prey on those who they ought to be loving and caring for, but instead make them very vulnerable and wounded. The report revealed that some denominational leaders responded in a not very compassionate way or in a uncaring way. In fact, the accusations are pretty damning against their responses. On the other hand, there were some churches and leaders that did not follow protocols and practices that would make the church a very safe place. And it's a travesty to the holy call of God that such people would be involved in such activity. Uh, since the investigation was self-prescribed, I have little doubt that the messengers of the SBC will act decisively in the coming annual convention in Anaheim. Now, I want to sort of settle this notion among us. Meadowbrook has practiced protective measures for a long time. We have had policies and practices in place, including Ministry Safe, for the last several years where we train our staff and all of our people that are working with preschoolers, children, students, and others. And our purpose is to spot activity that would cause alarm or concern. And when you see something, you say something. Uh, we practice in ways that we are not placing children or students or others in vulnerable positions. And we try to hold ourselves at a very high standard, the standard that God requires of us in his scripture. So we are, we are pretty vigilant about that. And I'm just asking you to be vigilant as well, that, that you as a church family help us to make sure that wolves do not come into Meadowbrook and seek to devour the innocence of others. So Meadowbrook is a safe place, and we want to ensure that it remains that way. It takes all of us to do that because the enemy is constantly looking to steal, kill, and destroy. And we just always ought to be on alert. So I, I wanted you to hear it again from my heart. We've said this numerous times that uh, if, if you're in a position where you feel uncomfortable, where you feel in some way abused, or maybe somebody is grooming then please let us know. I promise you this, I will come with a shepherd's staff and rod in my hand and I will protect and I will do all that I can to, to help you in that environment, in that situation. Meadowbrook is going to be a place where the sheepfold is gathered and people are loved and encouraged, not wounded. 
Now that is a pretty good lead into the passage that we're going to study today because 1 Peter brings this timely discussion about holiness to the forefront. In fact, he is going to say to us in this text today in verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. That's the standard that God requires. Be absolutely holy in all your conduct. Now, if you remember thus far in the epistle, Peter has laid out an in-depth statement about God's salvation that is granted to us. He writes that the salvation of God is in the foreknowledge of God. It's in the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ. In the beginning verses of this great chapter, he's just ushering out a doxology. It just comes from him because of this great salvation that he has recognized and received and shared with so many others. And so the apostle calls us to bless God, for God has made us to be born again. Uh, You're not making a decision to be saved. God is making you to be born again. And in that great regenerative work of God, you are determining that you want to agree with that, to be saved. And this is our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And that is an inheritance, as he says in the scripture, that is without decay, it's without evil, and it is unending. It's an amazing salvation that God is affording to us. And in that, Peter is saying, bless God for that. Now, like the exiled saints, we rejoice even in our trials, in our sufferings, in our hardships, knowing that our completed faith will result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the day in which we see him and we are made like him, it is certain that we will praise and glorify him. And I believe we will be Our eyes will be opened and we will look back at all those hardships and all those trials and all those tests and we will see the hand of God in the midst of all of them and we will rejoice in them. You say rejoice in the trial and the suffering that I've experienced? Absolutely. These present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed. And God will open our understanding to those those great events that he's been pursuing us throughout the years. So though we have not seen him, we believe in him, trusting him in the salvation for our our souls. And what Peter is reminding us is that the prophets told us about this, the preachers proclaimed it, and angels are marveling in the great grace of God that is extended to us. Now, that takes about two Sundays, three Sundays worth of preaching, puts it in about uh, I don't know, three or four minutes, and now let me just open up this text for today. Let's look at verse 13 and following. Therefore, that's the reason why I have to go back and pull the context, because when you see therefore, it's a conclusion that he's making. So he's, he's spoken about all this great wondrous work of God and salvation that is given to us, and now he's calling us to be attentive to something. He's going to make a command of us. It's an argument that comes in an imperative participle, in fact, multiples of them. So this is our life, and it's imperative that we live this way. Because of this great salvation, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me before the service, Randy, you still use a pencil when you read the Bible? Absolutely I do, and I'd be double underlining that verse. 
that is one of the most significant verses in the New Testament. And you ought to mark it, you ought to underline it, you ought to memorize it, you ought to say, oh God, by your spirit, help it to be alive in me, help it be in the expressions of my words, in the expressions of my life, that I would be prepared at all time in my mind for action, that I would be sober-minded, very diligent in my mind, setting my hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're going somewhere. And our minds ought to be prepared for where we are going. And so our actions should be as well, sober, vigilant. But now let's go on to verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He's quoting out of Leviticus there. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself therefore with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Hallelujah. With the precious blood of Christ that like of a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. An amazing text of Scripture. It was my, my uh, forethought to be able to share the four key components of these verses today. But because I love you, I'm only going to share two of them. And next week I'll share two more, or Hunter will share two more. Uh, Peter is shifting in his letter here. So he's been, he's been really exclaiming the wonders of salvation. He can't quit. It's like this urgency just to express the amazing salvation that God has given to us. And now there's a shift in this verse where he says, therefore, he's saying, now if that's the case, this is the way it ought to be. So he's talking about the exclamation of salvation. Now he's saying in exclamation, here's the way you live your life in that salvation. You know, you can't just look back on the day that you were saved. No, this is a continuous work of God's saving grace, sanctifying you, which means he's making you holy. So let it be that you live a life of holiness. If this is who you are in the salvation, the new birth that Christ has given to you, let it be evident in these ways. So Peter is shifting here. Those who are made alive in Christ have responsibilities and obligations that must not be negated, and that is that we would live out the life of the gospel. Now, let me mention two points of these four imperatives. I'm going to mention two for those who are born again. Let's focus on them. You'll see it in your handout. Live in the hope of God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Live in the hope of God's grace. Now, you might say, well, I've heard that all my life, live in the hope of Christ. Yeah, but let's dive in and see exactly what he's saying here, because don't, don't just let that pass by. He says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action. I might bracket that, prepare my minds for action. What does that mean to prepare your minds? What does it mean, the next phrase, being sober-minded? Because it's not just about not being intoxicated with alcohol or drugs or something else. He's, he's talking about even more broad than that. Set your hope fully on the grace. What is this hope? You know, you and I in the English language often think of hope as the potential of. 
In the New Testament language, the Greek New Testament, hope is not the potential of, hope is the certainty. This is our hope. And so it's very different than the way you and I would often talk. And of course, this is all going to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. You think it's good now? <laughs> He's saying, just wait. Wait till you see Jesus. Wait till you see him and you are made glorious in body like you are in spirit. Wait till you have no sin in your flesh. Wait till you see him at the revelation. It's going to transform everything. I think what he's saying here is that God has begun a work in you and he has a very definitive point where it's going to be fulfilled in the glory. And you are on a pathway and that pathway requires some things of us and is made available by God to us. So live in that. So by the Holy Spirit and the inspiration that he's giving to Peter, he is commanding us to live with certainty of God's grace that he will ultimately reveal when Christ is revealed to us. I would say, in other words, nothing trumps the reality of hope of God's inheritance secured for us in heaven, our salvation. Nothing trumps the reality of hope. If you think the, this moment in your life is hopeless, and I've talked to some people in the last few days who sensed hopelessness. I want you to hear this. In Christ, hope trumps everything. Everything. No matter how you feel, no matter the news, how crushing, no matter the weightedness, no matter the despair that seems to encroach into your thinking, hope is given to you in Christ. And it trumps everything. And it will be fulfilled for you in the moment that you see Jesus Christ the Lord. So when you and I are facing hardship and calamity, we must have faith that the Lord remains present in the trial, in the testing, and he is purifying our faith, resulting one day in the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. When will that occur? When we see him. When you see him, not only will you be made like him, all things will be understood that you need to understand. You'll look back and you'll see that every day of your life here on earth was part of a shaping and a fashioning for that moment in heaven and throughout all eternity. There are significant consequences, good and bad, that are occurring right now today in our day-by-day -day life and choices that will be revealed in heaven and will be experienced perpetually throughout the eternity. You and I ought to be living very distinctly. You and I ought to be living in the holiness of Jesus Christ, for we are going to be made fully holy. So rather than constantly focusing on your hardship, set your eyes on the hope that is in Christ Jesus at the revelation of Christ. Set your hope there. Now we have a tendency to just focus on the circumstance, on the hardship, on the trouble, on the disease, on the death, whatever. We have, a, we have a, an a issue about us that just focuses right there. And here's what Peter is saying to people who are experiencing much greater hardship than you and I are experiencing. He's saying to them, Set your eyes on the hope that is yet to be revealed, that will be revealed in Christ Jesus when he comes. Set your hope there. Get your eyes off this immediate situation. Sure, it's, it's real, it's significant, it's hurtful, it's impacting. But put your vision 
more fully. And with that vision in mind, you'll have a greater understanding of what's happening right now. I think you can even live with joy in the midst of the hardship, knowing that Christ is going to make all things new. So sometimes we're prone in our hardship and in the calamity and the difficulties of life to make demands of God. And we will say things like, Lord, we want this to be changed. We want to change the outcome of this. We want you to change the outcome of this. We want you to heal our disease, make things better, stop my hurt, replace my loss. Even, uh, even make these kind of demands with some sense of um, obligation. But listen, you and I are in no position to make demands of a master. We are slaves. We are his creation. Sure, made in his image, given the significant call of God, unlike any other creation, but we're in no position to make commands of God. And making those kind of demands of God and even agreeing with some kind of positive confession makes us very vulnerable to hopelessness when he doesn't respond according to our wants. You put yourself in a very vulnerable place. And could I just say, I'm sort of out on a limb here, hoping not to offend you, but you put your family and friends and others you influence in very vulnerable places when you do that. When you make insisting statements to God and you make claims and you make agreements about the claims that you want. Because when it doesn't happen, when, it, when he doesn't respond as you have claimed or desired him to respond, then hopelessness can settle in to you and others around you. And I hear it in questions like this, Pastor, do you think God really loves me? Do you think God knows about the situation I'm in? Do you think he cares the pain and the suffering that I am experiencing right now? Do you think, do you think his attention is on me right now? See, that's a sense of hopelessness because you, you've had a misdirected thought a misguided claim, a demand, an agreement that was not in the heart of God. And so when you're facing life-altering calamity and hardship, have faith, listen to me, have faith that God does love you and God is right there present in the middle of your trial. In fact, the scripture says he sets up camp right there in the midst of that trial. Have perfect hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that not only is he in the present situation, but he is working in the present situation to make all things good because you love him and he loves you. And in the end, he will rectify all things. He will make all things new. Have faith. Now, I'm going to pray for your healing and I'm going to pray that the calamity would be released. But if God chooses in his sovereignty to leave it in place, he is doing a great work. And in the midst of that suffering, like what the Apostle Paul experienced, in the midst of your weakness and in the midst of your pain, he is making himself known that his grace is more than sufficient. And he is sharpening you and he is challenging you and he is melting away all that that is impure. And you're left with a fortified, more valuable faith and understanding of God. Have faith and have hope. Those two are interlinked, are they not? So strong faith yields a complete hope. The stronger your faith, the more complete, and if I can use this word, perfected is your hope. You'll have greater clarity of hope because you have pursued strong faith. So nurture your faith, 
Set your eyes on heaven and anticipate the Lord's coming. Now look, he gives us a couple of commands to help us to set our hope in the right way. Because he says, set your hope on the coming revelation of Jesus. But first, he says, here's two things that you can do that would ready you to have this great hope that is fully set at the revelation of Christ. And here's the first. Live preparing your minds for action. Uh, how many of you still read the King James Version? All right. Here's the way we've memorized this in the King James Version. Gird up the loins of your mind, right? All right, nobody has any idea what that means, but it sounds kind of cool. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, if you were in the first century and you read that, that Peter is writing to you, you knew immediately what that is. This is a common ancient practice. All right, so slacks were not a thing back then. Blue jeans, no way. Khakis, uh-uh. It was flowing robes. You know, Jesus had a tunic that was made without seam, right? You know, you know how he put that on, right? It's like a large shirt. You put it on, you put your arms through it, and it flows all the way down. But I can tell you, it's hard to run in one of those. I've never tried it. You don't want to see me in a dress, but I'm pretty sure it's difficult to run. And you're not going to be able to fight. You're not going to be a warrior, able to fight very well. You're, you're going to have that robe around your feet. You're not going to be able to move with agility. You're not going to be able to to run after the enemy and chase him down, pursue him. You're not going to be able to hoe the garden <laughs> with a robe on like that. And so you would have to gird it up, which meant that you brought the ends up and you tucked them in a belt or a sash. You're girding up the loins. And so when Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, what he's saying there is you're going to have to gather up all the things around you that would encumber you from this run, this race that God has given to us, or this fight that we might fight the good battle of faith. He, he's saying you're going to have to gather all those wayward thoughts, all those worldly priorities that might ensnare you, and you're going to have to bring them in and tuck them into a belt. Now, what do you know about the armor of God in a belt? You know the belt is the belt of truth. And so I think what he's saying here is you're going to have to have all the wayward thoughts and the ways that your mind might be contemplating and all those encumbrances, and you're going to have to bring them up, cinch them up, and tuck them into the belt of truth. Put them under the scrutiny of God's Word, which you can only do that if you know God's Word and you're reading God's Word and you're engaging God's Word, you're wrestling with it and you're saying, oh God, where is my life not in accord with your Word and help me to get it there. When you have the Word of God like that or like the psalmist, I hide his Word in my heart that I might not sin again. When it's tucked in your heart, then you can bring all those thoughts and ways of the world and tuck them in truth, bring them into scrutiny. And in that he's saying you will be able to prepare your mind for action now you're ready to fight now you're ready to run the race now you're ready because you're not encumbered you're anticipating and moving towards something and it's the completion of your salvation so this doesn't just happen this isn't something that just magically happens 
This is something that God makes happen by his wondrous grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is certainly the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, but you and I have our part as well. We're saying to the Lord, we want to be active in this. We're going to bring all things around us, in us, chasing in our mind, and we're going to bring them under the scrutiny of your word, and we're going to tuck them into truth that we might be able to be actively moving towards the completion of our salvation, preparing our mind. If I could say it another way, it would be, let's disentangle from the ways of the world. Disentangle from it. Uh, could I put it one more way? Disentangle might be to unplug. Because the world is encumbering us with everything that plugs in. Disentangle. Tuck it into truth. Tuck it into the scripture. If it's whatever it is, you're holding a device, you're watching a device. If it doesn't come under the scrutiny of scripture with validity, then unplug it. Disentangle from it. You say, why? Because it affects your hope. It takes your eyes off the coming of the Savior. So he's really challenging us here. If God is going to have your heart, listen to me, if God is going to have your heart, then he must first have your mind. Because if he doesn't have your mind, he does not have your heart. And to keep your heart in Christ, you have to discipline the mind. So this is serious business, isn't it, Peter's talking about. He's saying you need to be active, be intellectually disciplined we ought to be asking often, is this fitting for a saint of God? And does this prepare my mind for godly action? Does this build my hope in the coming of Christ? Because if it doesn't, then it has no place to be active in my mind. And I need to cinch that up, bring it under the scrutiny of Scripture and tuck it into truth and be engaged. Our lives should be radically different from the people who do not call on Jesus as Savior. Just radically different. I'm just being honest, what I see is a blurring, a blurring. And we ought to be very different. And then he says, be sober-minded, live sober-minded. So we're going to live with the mind tucked into truth, our thoughts, be active in this, be very engaged in this, disip, uh, discipled, uh, disciplined in this, but live soberly. Now, being of sober mind, obviously, is the opposite of being intoxicated. When you're intoxicated, you don't have control. When you're intoxicated, your thoughts are, they're wacky. And so what he's saying is, be sober minded, be in control. We might say it this way, rather than being drunk with this world, its ideas, its ways, its entertainment, and its desires, be spiritually sober and self-disciplined. Why? Because it affects your hope. Here, here's what he's moving toward. Set your hope on the, on the Christ, the salvation of Christ is going to be revealed to you. And how do we do that? Well, we live with our minds active. We gird up the loins of our mind and we think soberly and we live soberly so that our hope is full in Christ. John MacArthur notes it this way. If a Christian finds anything more attractive 
than fellowship with Jesus, if he yearns more to enjoy this world than to receive the joys of heaven, then he does not love Christ's appearing. So cinching your ways and thoughts under the scrutiny of the Bible while detoxing from the worldliness and purposefully living spiritually sober will allow you to have hope fully set on Jesus Christ, which will be known at his revelation. It's an important statement for us to grab. So many in the church today try to shortcut hard intellectual work allowing entertainers and popular influencers to instruct us. And as a result, we've exchanged the noise of this world, of TV, of streaming services, of social media and the like, for thoughtful engagement, thoughtful contemplation and conversation, and study of biblical truths. And because of that, many people in church wrestle with hopelessness and are overcome by hardships and embittered by disease and try their best to squirm out from under calamity rather than ask, God, where are you in the midst of this suffering? Oh, God, heal me. God, protect me. God, free me of this, but help me to understand you're here in the midst of this. I want us to be mature people, people that are, have a distinct hope set on the coming of our Lord so may we gird up the loins of our mind and may we be sober in our living. What I've come to discover is that we've got to take hold and cinch all the immediate circumstances and experiences and emotions of our lives and tuck them into biblical truth. It's necessary because accurate conclusions require intellectual contemplation that is biblically sound and spiritually guided by the Spirit of God. For many people, personal experiences and feelings loom supremely in their life, leading well-meaning people to wrong conclusions, weakening their faith, declining their hope, and bringing disobedient responses. So it's time, Meadowbrook, that you and I be disciplined and fight an intellectual fight in our own brain, in our own heart, and come to the truth that Christ has afforded us in this text. So we need people who choose to be disciplined in their minds, intellectually astute people who understand their brains are the first offering of worship unto God. More than their hearts, their mouths, their hands, and their bodies, they activate their brain first. What thoughts you have are important. Could I ask you, what thoughts or ways do you have in your life right now that are entangling you and causing you to be less set on the hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ? What areas are keeping you from being fully settled on that hope and grace that is being brought to us in Christ Jesus? For some of you, it's alcohol. For some of you, it's pornography that muddles your mind. For others, it might be just constantly looking for something that's streaming, something new on Netflix or Hulu or YouTube or social media, and it just muddles your mind. Cinch that up unto truth and set your hope again on Christ Jesus. It's an imperative that Peter is writing here. It's not a suggestion for healthy, happy living. This is an imperative for people 
who have received Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you gird up and prepare your mind soberly by recognizing the problem, asking God to forgive that area of sin in your life, seek His grace and power to change, take a step of faith and obedience. It's going to require something. This isn't just something, yeah, I need to do that. No, take your first step right now. What does that mean? Uh, for some, it might mean, Lord, let me be intellectually savvy. Let me be disciplined to exercise spiritually in my mind that I might know more of your truth, that I might be able to cinch all things into truth. Help me to do that. That means, Lord, every day at this point, I'm going to be in your word or on Tuesday, or Thursday, or Monday, there's no TV on at my house, no social media at my house, I'm going to choose that night to be engaged in your word. I'm going to be purposeful about the conversations that I have, and I'm going to turn off the trash of the world, and I'm going to put down the trash of the world, and I'm going to choose to live soberly in the way that I am engaging in my living. Why? Because it beefs up the hope of the coming of the Lord. It, it, it moves me in that direction. And as you're looking at me like a calf looks at a new gate, I should have stuck with one point rather than two points. Let me see how much more I got to go here. Oh, goodness grief. Uh, could I just quickly, quickly move you to the second point? Hunter's going to preach this second half of this message. I'm going to, Hunter, I'm going to, I'm going to help you and give you about a quarter of your message that you can preach next week. Live as obedient and holy children of God the Father. All right, so we are determining to live in the hope and the grace that is revealed in Christ Jesus. That's, that's not just a revelation of uh, you receiving Him and His new life that is afforded to you in salvation. It's the anticipation of what He's doing. So if I'm anticipating what He's doing and the culmination of that when I see Him, recognizing this isn't over. In fact, this is just beginning. Sal Listen to me. Salvation is just beginning. There is a glorification of salvation that you and I don't quite grab hold of right now, but that is the majority of our salvation. So this, your moment that you came to faith in Christ is only the beginning. There is a great work of the Spirit that moves us in salvation to sanctify us, shaping us like Christ. And there is a greater moment for all eternity that is glorification. We will be like Christ. So you and, and I need to get out of this idea that salvation was a point in time when you said, yes, I receive him. Yeah, I want to be baptized. Yeah, I don't want to go to hell. Way more than that. Come away from that and say, God, what you began, you are continuing in me, and I want to be steadfast in my mind and in my heart and in my actions that when I see you, it will be grand that I might praise you and give you honor and glory at the revelation. So we ought to live with obedient, as obedient, holy children of God. Let's just read those verses real quick. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Man, what a challenge that is. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Have you ever sinned, and in the middle of the sin, boy, I'm, I'm about to tell on myself. You ever been in the middle of the sin and say, man, I hope the Lord doesn't come back right now. Anybody else ever had that stupid thought like that? That's just dumb. 
That's just dumb. Because whether the Lord comes back in the middle of my sin or whether he comes back 10 years after the sin or if he comes back any other time, the fact is everything done in this body is going to be held account to Jesus Christ himself. And so what he's saying to us is that we ought to anticipate that moment. Anticipate the moment of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anticipate the moment of the completion of your salvation. And as you anticipate it, what I've come to discover, the more I anticipate the coming of the Lord, the more I am engaged in a holy thought and life. Just recognize, yes, there's a reverential fear for that, but there's just this awesomeness of grace that I want to be revealed in that moment. That I want it to be evident in that moment. That God's sanctifying work has been alive in me. And that no, I am not sinless, but I'm not who I used to be. Though I still struggle, I don't struggle as one who is ignorant to the struggle. That I want that moment of seeing Christ and being given a glorified, resurrected body that will be available to live with him forever in eternity and experience all the glory of eternity. I want that moment to be the culmination that has been going on for years in me. And I want that for you. So people expecting the Lord's return have a great motivation and encouragement to live as obedient, holy children of God. And when we fixate on the return of God in Christ, then we walk in holiness in such a life like that honors the one who declares us to be holy. Let me just reframe that, repeat it for a moment. When you and I pursue holiness and live a life of holiness, then we honor the one who declares us to be holy. So this isn't something we're working at. This is something we're living in, expressing because God has given us such a great transformation. Peter calls us to live distinctly as obedient, holy children of God. And the opposite of that would be to be disobedient, rebellious people. Children of disobedience. Those describe the unsaved in Scripture. So he's giving us a very clear distinction. Really, when it comes down to it, There's only two reasons why you and I would live as disobedient children. Number one, because we are not saints. Never realized the fullness of God's gospel and received it, then made new from above. Or, for some reason in some season in our life, some day, some moment, we thought we would just move in opposition to the new life that Christ has given to us. We're all vulnerable to that because we still have the sin that we were born in and it's a sin that's full of the Adamic ways. It's a sin that Adam has brought to us that is absolutely certain to be deposited in every flesh alive today. And though we might be made alive in the spirit, we still struggle because sin resides within us. But listen, there's hope. And the hope is that the Spirit is battling the flesh. And the Spirit is stronger than the flesh. And if you'll not give 
to the passions of your former ignorance, the way you lived before holiness came to you. If you'll not give in to that, but live as a child, a holy child of God, by the Spirit's empower, you'll have great hope, longing for the Savior's return. Now, I've got a whole lot more that I want to share with you in that. I'm going to pass that off to Hunter, and hopefully he'll preach it really well next week because Kay and I are going to spend some time with our family down on the sands of the shores of the Gulf of Mexico. But listen, Meadowbrook, if there's ever a week that we talk about being holy, it's this week. It's ever a week that we determine to live soberly, it's this week. If there's a week that we take every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ and carry that forward, it's this week. Because the world is watching Southern Baptist churches and people right now, and rightfully so. Some in our denomination have put the scrutiny of the world on us. And I want you to know that God has given us the means in Christ Jesus to be a bright, shining light and not to be darkness. Let it be that you and I live in that integrity. Now bow with me in prayer, if you will. Even now, Lord, there's some in this room who are just struggling because there's a secret. There's darkness that is yet to be brought to light. There's a hidden way, a hidden word, an action, an activity that is just persisting. It's the opposite of what it is to be a child of God, certainly the opposite of holiness. And Lord, I don't point a judging finger at a single person in this room, but I do offer up the grace of Jesus Christ, who can and does bring transformation to any who will submit to him. And I ask, Lord, that your grace and your faith be poured out now in measure needed for that person to respond differently to that part of their lives. I pray, Lord, for salvation for those who have yet to receive you. Submit to Jesus, the King, the Savior, the Lord, the Master, the Messiah. And for those who have, I pray, Lord, it would be evident that you are master over their mind and heart and life and mouth and actions. And I pray, Lord, they would submit to you. They would take every thought captive, girding up the loins of their mind, living soberly, setting their hope fully, on Jesus Christ, and the glorious revelation of that salvation that is going to be revealed. And in that, Lord, may we think differently and respond differently, pray differently and talk differently as children of light. And we bless you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.